Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight in the satsang, I wanted to meditate on the, to muse a little bit with you on the whole range of spiritual experience. Um, I was um, thinking about how we move in the season from one subject to another. We just finished the parapsychology and yoga workshop where we spoke about so many paranormal phenomena and we're moving towards the yoga of perfect accomplishment where things refer to our daily life, to the coordination of our daily life. And uh, after that we're moving into Kashmiri Shaivism which is a highly spiritual strictly and exclusively spiritual subject, one of the top subjects here in Agama from the spiritual standpoint. And then I was uh, thinking that I needed a sort of a balancing commentary. As those of you who have been in the first level, in the very first lecture of Agama, in the What is Yoga lecture, we divide here the concerns for which people come to yoga in four main categories. That people come to yoga because of the physical body and health issues. And there are plenty of courses, parts of the courses, workshops and retreats in Agama, even teacher training programs which refer to this part of healing body. And... Uh, we have things in yoga which refer to the improvement of the daily life, which means people are trying to continue to live their daily lives, their focus is their own daily life, and at the same time they understand that yoga is a formidable friend to have in this respect. The Yoga of perfect accomplishment is coming exactly for people who try to use yoga in their daily lives. And uh, then we have the third direction in yoga, which is the direction of parapsychology, of uh, the study of the paranormal, that for some people these paranormal abilities, phenomena, they are very, very relevant and thus... Um, the yoga and parapsychology is a brilliant example of that. And that finally we have the pure spirituality, the self-realization, that part of yoga which is about our spiritual side. And uh, here the coming Kashmiri Shaivism uh, fusion thing is a splendid example of yoga and effort focused into that direction. At the same time, of course, uh, most of you know that this classification, that yoga is for this and for this and for this and for that, um, is a sort of a spontaneous classification, categorization, which we use here in uh, Agama. And uh, I was thinking that it's also interesting to compare it, to look at things from the standpoint of the ancient Vedic tradition, the ancient Hindu tradition, from where many of the teachings of yoga 
came from that spiritual environment and um, how things fit from that. It's like looking with a different perspective. This perspective is more traditional, more traditionalistic, we could say. And then uh, some things look different when they are looked upon from a different point of view, from a different angle. The ancient uh, Vedic teachers, when they created the traditional Vedic society, which is one of the milestones in the human civilization, in the development of the modern world as we know it, they simply speculated on the fact that for a human being to, to grow up in harmony, to live life uh, in balance, one uh, needs to develop, they also classified it in four, like there are four sides of life, and if one of those four sides of life is missing, then something is not harmonious. We, when we compare that with some of the modern religious trends, we see very clearly that they do not uh, fulfill the requirements of the Vedic wisdom, and you are going to see immediately why and how. The ancient Vedic scriptures, they classified the success of life in four headlines, which in Sanskrit they called Artha, Kama, Dharma, and Moksha. And um, approximately translated, Artha means prosperity. Now, prosperity means many, many things because we can be prosperous in terms of material abundance, but we can be prosperous in terms of health. Even health is a form of treasure, is a form of prosperity. Um, we can be prosperous in other ways, like even knowledge is considered a form of knowledge. I'm sorry, even knowledge is considered a form of treasure, a form of wealth. Uh, being wealthy in social accomplishments, being wealthy in terms of friends, relationships, are all of them a matter of included in this artha. And I'm going to come back to it just uh, with a few references, just to make you understand. First, I'm just defining the headlines. And then kama like in the famous uh, expression, in the famous title of the Kama Sutra, Kama being the Vedic name of um, the Hindu or the Vedic Eros, uh, the god of love and desire, so satisfying this part of love and desire, which in a tantric school, again, is easy to understand, it is easy to fathom, while uh, in many forms of asceticism, both the part with artha, with prosperity, is kind of relegated to nothing, and the part with kama is relegated to nothing, and therefore you can find many ascetics for which there was no artha and there was no karma in their lives, and then you realize immediately that's a modified tradition. That's not what the ancient rishis, what the ancient seers of the Vedas have spoken 
about life. Like, then what do you reach? What is the point? So, artha, kama, dharma, and moksha. Dharma is the religious righteousness. It starts from morality and ethics, the yama and niyama in yoga, and it means generally living a life in accordance with the order of the universe. In a Christian or Judeo-Christian Islamic understanding, dharma is a word which comes close to the will of God, so living in accordance with the will of God. Uh, Of course, people can never quite agree what the will of God is, because different people claim that they heard the message in a different way. So the will of God in different religions has some common portions and also has some very different parts. I'm getting back to that as well, because that's when one, one of the big moot points is in understanding. And finally, moksha, which is the radical part of spirituality, at least if you don't have artha and if you don't have kama, maybe you have some relevance with dharma, with the righteousness, and definitely maybe you reach uh, moksha, which means liberation, the final freedom, the act of nirvana, the consciousness of the Buddha, the act of setting oneself free from karma and not having to reincarnate ever again, being free truly and uh, reaching thus the freedom from the contingency, the freedom from the samsara, from the becoming, from the process of compulsory evolution, and all the things which come together with it. And uh, even here, the contradictions are major. For many people, for example, the aspect of dharma seems to go hand in hand with the aspect of moksha. Like first you are a moral, ethical, religious person and then crossing fingers, let's hope that we go to the total grace, that we receive the greater grace and thus we are going into moksha. Here many people think things in different ways and again I'm going to resume right now, I'm defining the headlines because for many people uh, they say How many people have reached moksha in a country in a generation? When you study history, you see that if in 2,000 years or in 5,000 years of human history we have 100,000 people having reached enlightenment, then the numbers are very, very small, right? We talk about 20 people in a year in the whole humanity reaching states of enlightenment. And actually when you look around the world, you cannot see even those 20, you know, in the present days. And thus, uh, where this thing is going is that some people say that dharma and moksha are united, like first there comes a moral, ethical, righteous, religious life, and then sometimes can amount in this spectacular accomplishment of Buddhahood, but at least if you didn't reach the Buddhahood, at least you stay with a moral, ethical life in which you create positive karma, in which you do not create uh, negative energies and uh, all those things. 
Um, but on the other hand, I was reading the other day, I was teaching the other day, one of the dharanas, one of the shlokas from Kashmiri Shaivism, which goes extremely in the direction of moksha or mukti. And there they even make fun. They say that what for other people is considered to be spiritual and ethical, moral purity, he says, for us in Kashmiri Shaivism is just ignorance and impurity. And therefore, here they even detach themselves from the religious rules, from the dogmatism, from the righteousness, and they say it has nothing to do while moksha, the Buddhahood, is an act of grace, it's an act of transcendence in which one goes from the finite to the infinite. On the other hand, the religious regulations, as they appear in 20 different religions on the face of this earth, they are not related to the spiritual grace, to the highest grace. So in this way, when we look at the human life, instead of looking like people do yoga because of health and improving daily life and paranormal accomplishments and uh, spiritual realization, when we choose to look from the traditional standpoint, we see some as other aspects of life. For example, uh, you can see that uh, some extreme ascetics of India, of Tibet, they may have gone on the path of dharma, going by the precepts of their religion, being Hindu for some of the Hindu yogis, or being, being Buddhist for some of the Tibetan Buddhist yogis, and then attacking the higher realms of spirituality, going into uh, the enlightenment itself. But on the other hand, when you study them from the standpoint of artha, like, did they live their lives comfortably, sufficiently, then you can say, well, these people have practiced a very intense detachment, and of course, they lived but naked, and they didn't have anything, but they were happy with it. They were capable of smiling and feeling comfortable because of practicing a certain detachment. So we are looking at it and we are saying ultimately the feeling of artha, the feeling of material accomplishment, prosperity, is extremely relative because it depends on what you put into it. If you look upon it with extreme detachment or whatever your norms are. On the other hand, when we look at the element of karma, we again see that many yogis and yoginis, especially the ones who are not practicing tantric forms of yoga, and especially the ones who are not practicing the sexual forms of tantra, they have lived in celibacy. And while you can infer a certain amount of karma in the mystical love that one has for deities, like a woman loving Jesus as Jesus is a man and a lover in a certain very, very refined way. On the other hand, if we exclude these, that uh, Ramakrishna felt that he was the lover of Kali, a great goddess, and uh, he did not feel this relationship sexual, but he felt it as mystical, right-hand tantra, an action of bhakti and love, 
then on the other hand, we see that for some of these people again, the factor of kama is also relative. Like they can say, well, I'm perfectly satisfied with what I got in this life, but then somebody else put in a similar position would see it as unsatisfactory, frustrating, and therefore will look at it from with another standard, with another measure. Now, when we look about how these things are fulfilled in Tantric Yoga, then we immediately find references, because we are uh, looking in terms of Artha, and there you find exactly these aspects of yoga in daily life. Like, do we need to cancel our daily lives completely and just be satisfied with pretty much nothing? Either that means that I am having a begging bowl and a robe in a Buddhist monastery, or I live in a Christian monastery, or I live in an Indian ashram, and there basically nobody can really say that I'm practicing any form of artha. My prosperity is more like I have sort of spiritual knowledge. I'm, I may be surrounded by like-minded people, and I may be in the middle of a community where we practice agape, where we practice brotherly and sisterly love, compassion, and other things, and therefore I'm rich in terms of social interaction, in terms of <coughs> that I'm not surrounded by gossip, by evil, by wickedness. And, um, therefore, I consider that uh, a norm of Arta. On the other hand, of course, in the Tantric reality, some people would say that uh, one actually needs to cultivate a sort of growth in the manifestation. <coughs> it is one of the arguments which I bring um, extensively when we do, when we teach the yoga of perfect accomplishment. Because uh, as soon as you start twisting the power of the mind and the energy and the function of the chakras and uh, the very uh, capacity of resonance, the very concept of resonance. As soon as we start turning them into accomplishing things of daily life, then things are very relative. Nobody would object in, uh, let's say, a Hindu yogic environment that it's good to have an abundance of health. While we see that in some self-punishing environments, like very often the Christianity uh, extols, exalts pain and suffering. Like if you had pain and suffering, then you are a saint. It's a very, very bizarre angle to things. Then automatically we see great mystics, Allah, Saint Teresa of Avila or Francis of Assisi or even Padre Pio in the 20th century, who lived in a more or less permanent state of illness. And so those people were not going for blooming health and vitality. For them, a blooming health and vitality would have been like an offense. It would have been like a sort of an arrogance. Like if you were sick, 
and kind of humbled by sickness and carrying that for 30 years through your life, that was a sign of real humility, of, of real modesty. And uh, even there, therefore, even when it comes to health, some people will say, well, yeah, health, but um, not too much. Not like you are shining and blooming and so on, because then you are like a healthy animal. You are just going around like a puppy, and you are shining with energy, and we don't want that. That's not really the path. That's why I'm calling your attention on the fact that these ancient norms from the Veda, Artha, Kama, Dharma, Moksha, prosperity and well-being, desire being fulfilled, religiousness and righteousness, as well as the final moksha, they are interpreted in different ways. They are put in a different perspective, different religious paths, different gurus, different schools, different lineages. They automatically bring their own combination about like what is acceptable and what is right and what would be too much. We see that in so many environments, in terms of money or no money, wine or no wine, sex or no sex, family or no family, and a hundred other things which are debated and approached in different ways from a religion to another religion, from a lineage to another lineage. So, here... If we interpret these things, turning back to Arta, to the first leg of the blossoming of the human being, according to the great rishis, if you are a fulfilled, an accomplished human being, then automatically you are going well into all those fields. Sometimes we see even some of the modern masters, or masters of the last thousand years, especially when they were existing more in a tantric environment, Somehow this Artha was, of course, with various degrees of fulfillment there. Like even the notorious Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, who was a bit of a hysterical madman in his own right, and he could not touch money because he felt a burning sensation just by touching money. And again, some people say, see, that's what I like. On the other hand, let's make a parenthesis. Swami Shivananda wrote 200 books and published them, and he made an ashram and a university and a printing press and hospitals for the Babas and a lot of other things. So he must have handled millions and millions of, in money. So he'd never had the thing that if you put money in my hand, I'm going to scream like a hysteric and run in circles because money is the eye of the devil and it burns me. So... Uh, but even in the case of Ramakrishna, funnily enough, Ramakrishna could afford to be this extreme hysteric, but he was sponsored all the time. Ever since he was 15 years old, he was the Pujari, the Brahmin priest in the temple of a low-caste woman of India, which most normal Brahmins didn't want to hear about her and serve in her temple because she was belonging to the low castes. But this woman, she was, Rani Rasmani was her name, she was very, very wealthy. And among other things, she sponsored Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna was a sponsored man from 15 to the age of 50-something when he passed away. He was sponsored all the time. So you can say that from the standpoint of Ramakrishna, as long as he had a house, he had food, 
he had clothes and he had all the minor requirements of life and he didn't need more than that, he didn't have the internal desire for more than that, then automatically you can say that Ramakrishna was living still in a relative act, in a relative state of prosperity. If we go to the 10th century Abhinavagupta, Abhinavagupta who is a prime tantric master of the Indian tradition, he is described as living in a luxury pavilion surrounded by music, fruits, crystals and dressed in silk and things like that. And therefore, even for Abhinavagupta who was sponsored by the king of Kashmir, to be the sage of the land, to be the wise man of the land in that century. Even for Abhinavagupta, you can say that he was having a sort of artha. It's not that he was a, by the standards of a billionaire of today, but nevertheless he lived without any worry or stress about financial, physical, material things. He was he was free completely to focus his activity on the spiritual things which he was doing without having to pay any attention to the stringencies of material life. So, of course, where this feeling of artha is for each and every one of us depends from culture to culture, from century to century, from spiritual lineage to spiritual lineage, and people have to evaluate if they want to live like Ramakrishna or like Abhinavagupta of the 10th century, or if people want to live by other standards, which some, there are always new standards emerging, like now in the 21st century, the world is very different and it lives in another way. Swami Shivananda in the 20th century, he again lived by a different standard, then Abhinavagupta in the 10th century. Uh, and this is not said in any competition, comparative way, not in the meaning of saying that Abhinavagupta was better than Shivananda or Shivananda was better than Abhinavagupta. It's just showing that for either of them in their century, there existed this Vedic sense of balance that one has all the survival elements. And again, what one defines as Artha is very different. In a Tantric understanding, uh, we are having this feeling that there exists a, a secret motivation, secret in the meaning that the mind does not fathom it because we don't have enough brain, we don't have enough data, but there is a sort of a mysterious uh, motivation of which, for which the divine consciousness has produced the manifestation out of the non-manifestation, has divided itself in Shiva as spirit and Shakti as nature, as universe, that Shiva and Shakti are the two facets of the same coin. They are inseparable, they are together, they love each other, they dance together, they make love together, they are just the sides of reality. And then we have this puzzle which many people even after attending an introduction into Kashmiri Shaivism, they fail to fully understand because they expect a sort of a kindergarten 
uh, elementary logical explanation, and of course you will be disappointed because there is no elementary logical explanation, like why does the universe exist? You know, many people, every time when they get frustrated, they are uh, sort of confused, you know, like my life is a misery, my life has been a misery for the last 10 years, I can't find out about the whole thing, even now I don't seem to see a way out of my confusion, and then people tell me that God is a child playing in a garden, and the whole universe is the lila or the play of God. But as far as I am concerned and my ego is concerned, this play seems to be painful, sadistic. I often felt depressed, suicidal, negative, angry, and other things, you know, and it's like, in the name of what is all this game? Why do I have to go from thousands and thousands of lifetimes, and I have to go from do mistakes, kill people, be wicked, then I go to hell, I gnash my teeth, and everything is going dark and terrible, and it's all in the name of a great cause, which I don't understand a bit of that cause. And that's why for many people, the, this question is, you know, they say, I prefer, I would have preferred to stay as pure spirit. Why did God have to spit me out like a separate drop from the ocean, and I have to wander like, you know, a wanderer, like a prodigal son, wandering out of my house, and then hoping that one day I go to nirvana and I return into the bosom of divinity and I reach eternity and happiness again. Why go through all this? And thus, for many people, um, this is cryptical, this is mysterious. Why did a unified consciousness, which is supposed to pre-exist forever and ever, called the Tao, or called God, or called Brahman, or called the Absolute. Why did this consciousness need to play a sadistic game where there is family violence and torture and injustice and accidents and misery and so on? And this, I mean, there are also beautiful orgasms and tasty food and nice sunsets and so on, but they are mixed with the rest. So when we look at the whole picture, the whole picture is very mixed up. And then some people tell us that this is the will of God, that God wanted to create life. Many people are a little bit like, you know, I don't like life. If, if it wouldn't be a religious sin, I would commit suicide today and get out of all this. You know, I don't like all this. It's annoying and I can't find my way through it and I feel my existence in this world painful, confusing, challenging in so many ways. So for many people what I'm trying to say, this very explanation that we know from a spiritual metaphysical standpoint that every religion expresses that the divine, whatever the name of the divine is, that the divine favors life that you should not commit suicide, that life is precious. But why is the divine inspired to pump, to pump, to pump, to pump, to pump, to create life? Planets and galaxies are barren, and sometimes they get the conditions for life, and then life appears. We can speculate scientifically, like how does life appear, 
and if aliens brought it from another galaxy or what it is, but still the elementary problem remains the same. No? If there is a divine consciousness, it's possible that many of you don't even believe that, in the meaning that you don't know. There is a theory which you heard from Ramakrishna or somebody that the divine consciousness has created this reality and we are part of a much, much bigger game. But ultimately, if we agree that the divinity, whatever we want to call the divinity, personal or impersonal, it doesn't matter for this approach, it has created life and therefore life is in the books. It's wanted. It's desired. Then, you know, then if the divine consciousness doesn't like only the transcendental spirit, Shiva, but also likes the immanent spirit, the manifestation, the world, Shakti, because things don't happen in spirit. Things happen in a manifested world, which has length and breadth. It's measurable. It's a maya by the terminology of Vedanta. It's like a dream. And in this dream, Adi Shankaracharya is walking and doing things. And Jesus and Swami Shivananda and others are doing things, sometimes hard to fathom, in this reality. Why in this reality? Why did the Supreme Consciousness send so many myriads of souls to be part of this reality and do things in this reality? Some people have built the pyramids and in a million years the pyramids will be dust. Unless some special protection project is done to revive them every 10,000 years, we all know that in a, in a million years you won't even see the trace of the pyramids. They will be reduced to rubble. They will be blown by the winds of Sahara into pieces. And therefore, it's like, why do people bother to do things when in 700 million years or in 700 billion years not even the shadow of a galaxy will be left to tell any story. So like why to invest in things which now are here, tomorrow are not here and thus the first question which we ask in the tantric tradition is that it is obvious that although life is transient and you can look at it with the words of the Dalai Lama and say life is like crossing a bridge because really nobody comes from this life and nobody stops in this life. So this life is not the alpha and not the omega. It's not the beginning and not the end. This life is somewhere in the middle. It's a stage. It's just a stage. You pop up like a baby and you die like an elderly person. And that's the end. You've been through life. Even if you go through life 5,000 times, it doesn't change the fact that life is 5,000 bridges, but still it's a limited number of bridges. It's still a bridge as a matter of principle. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is, why does an invisible, perfect, absolute, immutable consciousness, which is not dependent on space and time, or any other limitative factor, why does it promote life in a world which is limited, sometimes painful, like Buddha has seen it? No? It's a world in which there is torment, and there's a world in which there is um, death, 
and illness and old age and all sorts of other unpleasant factors. Let's call them at least unpleasant, if not more than that. And thus, uh, what I'm trying to say here is that even without us understanding, we can at least be humble and surrender in understanding that, okay, we don't see it. We can as well say the whole thing is a game and God is a crazy child that plays a game, but there seems to be a push. There is a push because the universe started. It is preserved. It goes on. There are laws of manifestation which maintain it stable, like the laws of action and reaction, the laws of balance, of different kinds. And what am I trying to say through this? I'm trying to say to this that since a mysterious cosmic consciousness has made us into separate individuals, and as separate individuals we are sent to exist, and we are even told you should not stop your own existence, like commit suicide. That doesn't stop anyway the existence, but it's a sort of a desperate attempt to kind of cancel things. It doesn't cancel anything. It makes things worse usually. So, uh, And still, I'm having this, and therefore it means that somehow there is somewhere an agenda. And it seems that by matter becoming conscious, something is happening. I don't know if you realize that you yourselves are made of atoms and molecules. And atoms and molecules, when they are outside of your body, like somewhere out there, you call them matter. It's just substance. Either it's atoms of oxygen and nitrogen which come from the atmosphere, <laughs> or other things which plants extract from the soil and so on. We are just made of atoms and molecules. And on the face of this earth, there is a number of atoms and molecules, and the part of them are alive. And life is increasing. What if we think in science fiction terms, and we say, okay, if we are smart enough, and if we don't pollute ourselves to death, and if we don't uh, exhaust our, the resources of the earth too quickly, and if we don't get a comet on our heads to go back to dinosaur time, or if we don't start a third world war to nuke ourselves out of existence, then maybe not in 2,000 years from now. 2,000 years is a lot in terms of intelligent human history. But not in 2,000 years, maybe in 10,000 years from now, maybe in 100,000 years from now, we will be on more than one planet. There will be more than one planet with human beings because we will migrate, we'll start flying in the universe and filling it up with our descendants. And, you know, what is the meaning that the cosmic consciousness created life on one planet and then in a hundred thousand years or in a hundred million years, it doesn't matter, the time scale is relative, we're having life on thousands and thousands of planets. That means that the divine consciousness somehow knew that life was going to increase. Now you have seven billion people on this planet and each one of them is about a hundred kilos heavy. 
I just make it for the sake of simplifying the mathematics. So we have approximately 700 billion kilos of human flesh on this planet. 700 billion kilos have been stolen from the mineral and they have been turned into human. If the whole humanity dies tomorrow, all this matter will rot in a matter of days, weeks, months, and it will turn back to the soil and to Mother Nature. It will be reabsorbed in the manifestation. But the fact is that right now, a large number of human beings are carrying matter. We are stealing matter from the universe, and this matter is sitting in front of you, talking to you, exhibiting reason, exhibiting a consciousness and being an I am, and therefore exhibiting spirit, exhibiting what the Indian yogis call Atma, Atman. I am Atman, you are Atman. Now, why the Atman has been given this mission to collect? And if we go on 10,000 planets, imagine there will be way more than 7 billion human beings, whichever, even if they mutate genetically and they develop. I'm talking as a matter of principle now, not into the tiny nitty-gritty details of it. I'm talking of the principle that there will be way more than 700 billion kilos of flesh in some future. So that means that life increases. That means that life expands. And as we go in time, we find that more and more matter becomes organic matter, becomes living matter. So it's like dead matter becomes enlivened. There are atoms in me right now. Twelve years ago when they were out there, they were not talking and they were not thinking. Now they are part of my system and they are talking and thinking and feeling I am. So how do we steal matter, which is dead? Of course, we think it's dead. It's never dead, but still the, the contrast remains. How do we steal matter? It's, it's like the spirit wants to impregnate the matter. The matter is inert, and the spirit, that's, that's the symbolism of Shiva and Shakti. Exactly as a sperm cell catches an egg, fertilizes it, and then it becomes a human being. How does spirit fertilize matter? How does Shiva fertilize Shakti? And more and more matter becomes spiritualized. And that simply says, you probably don't realize where I'm going with all this raving. I'm going to the fact that if there is a growth there is an interest, which we, again, we cannot explain logically. We admit it with humbleness that it might be so because it seems to be so. But then we see that there is a sort of a growth, not only that the divine consciousness created life. We don't even know if biology is truly, truly right. But if life was a bunch of amoebas a billion years ago, and now look what life is. Why is it growing? Why is it swelling up? It means this growing, you know, like the God in the Bible who says to Adam and Eve, grow and multiply. Why grow and multiply? 
Now multiplication is a sort of overpopulation ticking bomb. We don't need multiplication anymore. We are too many. The cynical United Nations thinkers, they say they should produce viruses and world wars to reduce the population of the world to one billion. Because seven billion is too much. Six billion people should better die. That's what the cynical round table think tanks idiots think. They wrote whole documents. Since 40 years, they make conferences for intelligent people, not for the emotional masses who shouldn't hear these things, you know, in which they simply say the truth is that people are fucking like rabbits and they should die a little bit. A little bit meaning six billion out of seven should disappear like this. If somebody would have the magic power to do this, they would do it because they think we are too many. And again, intellectually and rationally, they could be right. But then why does this force, like is it all a randomity, a chaotic randomity, or if there is some sort of design, if there is some sort of creative intelligence, why does this creative intelligence push for more and more and more and more? And the question is, until when? Because, of course, we can think science fiction and say instead of a planet, we're going to be on a thousand planets in some number of years. But how, will this continue like this? And then eventually will every planet and solar system in this universe be populated because there is a growth without end and everything will be full of life? Why is life so meaningful? And with this we come to Artha, that the ancient Vedic seers, they understood in a very simplified way, but very wisely, that there is this, that life involves prosperity, growth. Even Jesus says it in a funny way, but he uses a metaphor which is based on money. The famous parable of the denarii or of the talents, where the master gives to three people ten units, $10, just for you to understand in modern currency, and in the end of the day, which means in the end of the life, he comes and gets it back. And the first of them just buried it because he was too afraid to lose the money of the master, and in the end of the day, he just digs them up and gives him back 10. And guess what? The master is not satisfied. The master barks at him and sends him into the outer darkness. He is the idiot who lost. Like, the master did not want, I give you ten, you give me ten. The master seems to come from the Jewish religion, you know, he wants some usury. He says, I gave you ten, you give me eleven, you know, it's like, does God need to make a profit on the human life? That's obviously not the point of it. But the point of it is that the divine consciousness says that if you are born as a ten, then you should die as an eleven. Or you should die as a, a hundred. No? The divine consciousness wants you to be more. Wants you to grow. If you are born ten, and if you die ten, it means your evolution was zero. That's a bummer. It means you lived your life for nothing. If you evolve zero in 80 years, that's a fiasco. So you should go from ten to more. But this more, 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 until when? Because it seems to be without end. It seems to be a principle. 
And then the same thing applies to everybody's life. Because everybody realizes, if I would be more, I would do more. You could do more. Agama is an interesting experiment. And many of you come and tell me, Swamiji, thank you for creating Agama. Thank you, thank you, you know, and so on. And it's like, but believe me, if I would have 30 million dollars, I would buy an island in Greece or in the Pacific Ocean, and I would make a butt naked yoga and tantra republic where we can, and we would have a lot of things which would upset Big Brother very, very much. We would secede, we'd make a separate country with everything, you know, and we'd have our own laws, and we'd do other things. So, I would like to do more. If I would have 30 billion dollars instead of 30 million, I would try to make something even more grotesquely big. But I wouldn't stay, because I would want to go from 30 to 31, you know. I would try to push the envelope to more, because that's the divine law. That everything has to grow. So in the moment when you grow, you can do more. If I have the spiritual power which I have, I do what I do. And if I would have activated to the maximum the spiritual power in the same way in which Jesus was, 24-7 walking on water and raising dead people from their graves, then obviously I'd be doing a different story. No, everybody lives in the shoes which they have received from on high. My shoes are not the size of the shoes of Jesus. Because otherwise, like Jesus says, nobody lights a candle and puts it under a pot. Because then the candle is useless. When you light a candle, you want it to shine. So, everybody lives according to a certain measure which they have. And this is appearing... Even in terms of Artha, the Vedic seers were right. Swami Shivananda was right. That he was not afraid to do Karma Yoga. To do a university. You know, who has heard about a university of yoga? First man who did it was Shivananda. Who has heard about that a yogi should have his own printing press? Well, Shivananda did it. He had a printed press. And if he wanted to print shit... He printed shit because it was his printing press and he could print anything he wanted. He didn't need some rich capitalist to approve. Like I go begging to Simon and Schuster or to the Times uh, you know, and saying, please, please, can you publish my book? No, I have enough money to publish my own book. I am publishing it. No? And therefore, this is what I'm trying to say. Uh, first understand that this thing with Arta, which we explain... In the yoga of perfect accomplishment, there is one reservation. Some people have the reservation because many people are grown up in fundamentalist Buddhism, fundamentalist Hinduism, fundamentalist Christianity or others. No? And then they value staying away from everything. Like living in deprivation as a measure of spiritual merit. But actually the Vedic seers they have said, no, you are meant to grow. You are meant to shine. You are meant to exist. You are meant to be. 
and the bigger you are, the more difference you will make. And thus, the first thing is that indeed, Artha is a measure of things, and here in Agama we express it in workshops like the Yoga of Perfect Accomplishments and others. Then comes Kama. This planet is a water planet. Either we like it or not. There are worlds, Lokas, as they are called in the Vedic tradition, which are even lower than this planet. This planet, although some of you get desperate sometimes, and you think we are living in a terrible place, and when you look at the news, it almost looks like that, but guess what? It's not the worst. It could be worst. Of course, it could be higher. This world, all of you who have done a few good levels of yoga in Agama, you know that the big problem and one of the big joys at the same time is Vadistanas, 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 Vadistana. We are a planet of the water element. And in the water element, the factor of desire, especially this desire related to lust and eros and sex, it cannot be denied. It's completely absurd to look the other way and to say, let's pretend it doesn't exist. Even Buddha acknowledged it in the negative way, like trying to extract from it big time, but he acknowledged it by saying, you know, if there was another enemy like lust and sex, I wouldn't have made it to nirvana. Like this almost destroyed me. This almost put me down. And therefore the Vedic seers have said again, since we are born out of desire, sex. There's not a person here who is not born out of a desire in one way or another. At least the desire to procreate or something similar. And since humanity is built the way it is, it is embedded in the pathways of our brain that if we have no kama, then we are not fulfilled. Our life is not right in that way. And that's why the Vedic seers have said one should include Kama in one's successful life. Like you should have some Artha. How much? I don't know. But remember there is a law of growth which asks you to exist more, to manifest more and more and more. And then the same thing applies with Kama that Kama is a part of our existence on the face of this earth. And that's why one has to be fulfilled there. So besides a workshop like Yoga of Perfect Accomplishment, where you try to use the magic of yoga, the power of the mind, the tapasya, the fire, the chakras, the energy, for accomplishing more health, more relationships, more erotic awakening, more... Uh, material prosperity, more of the accomplishment of one project or another, a dream or another. On the other hand, in Agama, in a tantric yoga place, we also have the working on Kama. Because Kama, the sexual desire, has its own pitfalls. Buddha himself, and he cannot be considered an idiot, Buddha has said, oh man, you stuck your penis into a vagina. You should have better stuck it into a jar full of burning coal. 
What does Buddha intend to say? He says, if a man, it's valid for women, he was speaking for men mostly, but it's the same thing, the principle matters. He said, you started having copulation. That becomes an addiction. It's one of the most powerful neurotransmitters. Every time when you have sex, your brain produces endorphins, melatonin, DMT, a score of amazing things which make you feel good. It's true that if your karma is shitty, then even the karma doesn't work. There are lots of people, probably some even in this environment, who are totally suffering and destroyed and disharmonious precisely because of sex. But because of sex gone wrong. And then from a friend, it becomes a foe. From happiness, it becomes sorrow. So, when it happens the right way, it becomes a powerful addiction. And then Buddha says, if one day you try to become celibate like I am, then sex will obsess you day and night. It will be like the devil. It will be like many Christian mystics, when they had sexual fantasies, they said that the devil torments them. For them, sex was the devil. And thus, Buddha says, you know, it's because you tasted the honey. You tasted the honey, your receptors are full on, then sex is becoming the biggest punishment, or actually the lack of sex is becoming your biggest punishment. So, one way or another, our need for karma has to be satisfied. Artha, prosperity, growing, existing in the material world. And then, karma, expressing pleasure, desire, one way or another. Again, I'm saying, for many people, this is difficult to understand from one lineage to, an, to another. Ramakrishna wouldn't touch a coin, so other people through the back paid his expenses. The same coins, which he wouldn't touch, were manipulated by other people. You know? While Swami Shivananda manipulated millions to build hospitals and universities and this, and he didn't get burned at all. So, Different people will react in different ways, as I said, to Artha. Different people will react in different ways to Kama. <coughs> Paul, the Apostle of Christ, he said, if it were according to me, I would advise you all to turn celibate. Even if you are married, you should live like brother and sister. White marriage. Right hand Tantra. No, no sex. But he says, I spoke to God, and he told me that I am a dreamer, and that you cannot live like me. And therefore, he is giving you a much easier commandment. Live your life like this and like that. No? In, in which he gives some of the Christian norms of sexuality and the others. So, karma, satisfied one way or another, in the... In a tantric school, it's of a totally different dimension. And people who don't understand it, they get afraid. There are people who say, I wouldn't build a hospital because it's too much money to take care of. Swami Shivananda did. Some people would say, I would not have multiple sexual relationships. Some people say, well, I would. 
It's like Shivananda. It's like you do or you don't do some things depending on how big the, your shoe size is. No, depending on what you can take, how much you can take in your chest. And so we basically say Artha is manifested and it is taken into account. Kama in a tantric school, it is also manifested and take it, taken into account. Then we come to Dharma. Dharma is also manifested when you come in a place like Agama from the very first level of yoga, one of the main themes which takes about half of the evenings of the first level is Yama and Niyama. There are no less than 10 separate lectures out of 23 lectures. 10 lectures are addressing Yama and Niyama. Why? Because from a yoga class, how many people will become Buddhas in 20 years? A certain number. Depending from guru to guru, each one has a different productivity, but some will. Definitely not all. Like we have never seen, even in the world of Jesus, we have not seen that Jesus spoke to a thousand people, and a thousand people all became saints and enlightened beings. It's a percentage which is understood and as Jesus was noticing this and he said, I'm talking to you but not all my words are staying in you. Like some enter through the right ear and exit through the left. They don't stay into you because some people are not there, are not ripe. It's not their time has not come. And therefore Dharma, when we talk about Dharma, we say, if some of you has been with Agama for 10 years, but you are not going into an enlightened being, is that a total bummer? Like, have you got zero? Or what have you got meanwhile as collateral to this? Because a person who lives in Dharma gets good karma, harmony, blessing from the gods, assistance from the superior entities, and therefore such a person gets a very blessed life anyway. Everybody who lives a spiritual life, unless you are living a spirituality which is self-punishing and involves that you should punish yourself for the sins of the world, which maybe it's a path, but in yoga we don't have it too much, no? then automatically a spiritual life is good, it's harmonious, it's luminous. And I was planning, by the way of this, if I will have enough time, to read you some of the thoughts of Buddha, some of the very sayings of Buddha about the state of compassion, one of the highest values in Buddhism, because some people say, oh, compassion is therefore about enlightenment. No. No, that's the big mistake. Compassion belongs to Dharma, not to Moksha. Moksha, the number four, doesn't depend on anything. It depends on grace. It's a transition of a limited consciousness into the infinite. That you prayed or you did Vipassana for 20 years, and then suddenly you've reached infinity. As I say in every final ceremony, that's the best ever investment, that you invest 20 years in one life 
and then you reach nirvana forever, it's a real good investment. It's an investment which has an infinite profit to it. That's why for most people you can't even believe it. Like how can it be that you meditate for 20 years or for 20 lifetimes, 20 years in each lifetime, and after 400 years of spiritual practice you reach nirvana. But nirvana is infinite. How can you reach something infinite with a finite effort? That's why again and again, moksha, the spiritual freedom, the emancipation, is otra shows, is another thing, is a totally different dish. That does not depend on you being compassionate. Realize, compassion is a value which belongs to dharma. And thus, people learn to cultivate also the dharmic values, living according to certain principles. Either we are talking about uh, non-violence or truthfulness or no theft or brahmacharya or aparigraha, detachment and non-possessiveness and all those things from yama and niyama, automatically this creates a better world. This creates a better world. So, theoretically, you don't have anything. You know, it's, it's one thing to make rules of a society that the society should survive. And it's a totally different thing if, if you talk about enlightenment. That's why spiritual people coexist. Because if some of you here in this room have in your heart that, hey, in Agama, there is a path. And theoretically, if I would press on, I could reach a state of samadhi and I could become enlightened. That's one part of what you do. But then there is artha, kama, dharma. There are the three other legs of that table, which also are there or have to be there somehow. Because enlightenment is not about going away. For many people, this moksha, this fourth part, is an escapistic part. You know, like the universe is terrible and has uh, limitations. Even if I'm trying to stitch a pillowcase or something, it's difficult and I get it right and I prick my finger and that's, you know, karma yoga and work in the world is very annoying and provocative. And therefore, why don't I go to samadhi and stay there for a gazillion of bazillions of years until the universe shuts down and ends. Basically, it's an escapism. You know, it's like I'm trying to avoid being in the world and go somewhere and there be in Kaivalya, be in total isolation, be in a pristine ecstasy forever and ever. Whatever happens on earth, whatever happens in the solar system, whatever happens in this galaxy, <coughs> it won't make any difference because I'm gone into cosmic consciousness already. But as I just told you, this final reward, let's call it a reward because for some people it feels like it's a reward, this enlightened consciousness, it comes as an auxiliary of three other things. Because even Buddha, when he reached Nirvana, he didn't die. He just came back and preached. He had five monks 
who didn't believe him and he said this man is a glutton and he broke his tapas and his vows and so on. Then he started preaching Buddhism and people hated him for it. There were kings who got irritated by the popularity of Buddha and they tried to assassinate him. Maybe you didn't read the life of Buddha, but Buddha, they tried to assassinate him three, four times. He was like Jesus. He was the public enemy number one. He was the number one enemy of many, many people in the society of his day, precisely because he had the authority and the discrimination of being the Buddha. And the history could continue. No, like Buddha existed for another 40 years in his body, or maybe 45 years. And then the Buddhists established the famous Bodhisattva vow, that I actually not, am not going to enjoy full nirvana forever and ever, until the last soul in this universe becomes enlightened. Which of course is never going to happen, because there is always going to be a rainworm, or some chimpanzee, which is lagged, be lagging behind, and they are not enlightened. You know? So it's like there's always animals and amoebas and bacterias and this, which are inferior forms of life. So when will there come the day when all the spirits will be enlightened? Never. Basically, the Bodhisattva vow says, I'm not going to nirvana forever and ever. As long as the universe exists, I am here doing karma yoga. I'm getting incarnated, existing in a body, and I'm assisting people who want to do what I did, people who want to follow in my footsteps, I can show them the way, I can show them the path. And thus, even in the attitude of the Buddha, you can see that the existence is carried on in this physical world, because originally the divine consciousness doesn't want Buddha to just say, you be a rich nirvana, auf Wiedersehen, you know, I'm gone, I'm out of here, you know. No. Even Buddha, who is dry and ascetic in so many ways, he stays. He stays because intuitively he knows from that Buddha nature, from that supreme consciousness, he knows that the purpose is for the show to go on. The show must go on. Even if you now, as a Buddha, have a different status. You are not an inmate, you are a visitor, you are a guest, but still you are part of the ecosystem. The masters of Shambhala and the Buddhas and the saints, they are part of the ecosystem. They are a very exotic part of the ecosystem, but still they are part of the existence on the face of this earth. And therefore, Artha, Kama, Dharma, Moksha, they all must exist because none of us is going purely for Moksha. And then Artha, Dharma, Kama, ah, you know, they can drop dead because I'm out of here. But you are not. Even if one of you is reaching the great enlightenment tonight, tomorrow you'll still be around here doing your karma yoga. Like Krishna, who is the charioteer of Arjuna. You know, it's like Arjuna could say, like John said to Jesus, I'm not worthy to tie your sandals, you know. Like you are Krishna, you are God. And I am just a stupid king, you know. And yet you serve as my charioteer. And Krishna says, Arjuna, take example from me, he says. I have nothing to accomplish in the three worlds. Like he says, I'm God. I've reached to everything. And he said, yet I'm incarnated in a human body, not the most noble body of all in this universe. 
I'm incarnated in the human body and I'm playing the job of a dumb charioteer here with you in a stupid war in Kurukshetra. You know, like what the heck is God doing playing charioteer for Arjuna? No, because the show must go on. The human beings, for some people, the spirituality is a sort of an escapism that ah, I'm just going to... I, I can't do business, I can't raise kids, I can't do this, I can't do that. Therefore, I'm just going to practice yoga to reach enlightenment. But you, are, you will be disappointed. Because then you'll discover that the show must go on. And you got nothing. Now, eventually, of course, you've got one of the greatest gifts which exists. But still, it's not the final solution. That's why the Vedic sages... They were right. It's Artha and Kama and Dharma and Moksha. Like you have to struggle for all of them. Sometimes some gurus can insist on one of them. Because they see that the society is disturbed. At the time of Krishna and Arjuna, there existed great rishis. And there was a spiritual inspiration in the Vedic Indian society. But then when Buddha came, he found only egocentric kings and people who are trying to live in a life of oblivion. That's why Buddha is like a reformer. Then later, Hinduism became strong again with Shankaracharya and Abhinava Gupta and the likes of them. But there was a gap. And in that gap, Buddha came. And when Buddha came, what did he say? One of his many, many sayings. He said, monks, I urge you to work ceaselessly for your nirvana. Why? Because out of artha, kama, dharma, moksha, everybody was easily understanding artha, kama, dharma, and nobody was looking for moksha. The, that dog, that cow was limping of one leg. One leg was shorter. And then Buddha came to cover that leg. And he said, monks, I urge you, ceaselessly work for your enlightenment. Like, don't forget moksha. Neither too much, nor too little. Like Krishna told to Arjuna, the one who reaches enlightenment is neither the one who eats too much, nor the one who eats too little. It's neither the one who sleeps too much, nor the one who sleeps too little. It's exactly this idea which Buddha has called the middle path. That a string must not be neither too stretched, not too loose. In, in life, in spiritual life, you all have to find a way of harmonizing. So, meditate, because that's another way of dividing the life in four chapters. Not like in the first lecture of Agama, but more according to the Vedic tradition. Like, how is your artha, prosperity, comfortable existence in the world, how is it going on? Are you living? Are you flowing? How is your kama? Are you fulfilled from the standpoint of eroticism, desire, pleasure, relationships, and all the things there? How are things from the standpoint of dharma? Are you subscribing to a morality, to a righteousness, to a harmony? Even if that is yama and niyama from yoga. In my opinion, yama and niyama 
is much more profound and harmonious than some of the religious regu regulations, which are still fighting if people can drink a little bit of wine every day, or if wine is totally the devil. If people can touch money, or they shouldn't absolutely touch money. If sex is part of the equation, or everybody should be a total virgin and celibate and this. People quarrel about these things. In yoga, you will never quarrel about this because you have the concept, let's take sex. You'd have the concept of brahmacharya, and brahmacharya has two main ways of application, and you can choose one way of brahmacharya or another, and then you follow it, and that's your harmony in life. And therefore, there doesn't need to be too much strife, like between religions and sects and cults, which simply rely on a absurd thing. That was the right thinking of Buddha, who says, first of all, you should have an existence which is without superstition and ignorance. Most of the religious people in this world, they live in superstition and ignorance. They don't really know what are the roots of their religious thinking. So, ask yourselves, how is the leg of Artha, Kama, Dharma, the morality, the righteousness? And finally, like Buddha says, are you fighting for your moksha? Are you looking into your moksha? Are the four legs, all of them present? If you have a table standing on four legs, then it's balanced. Then it's complete. They actually, in India, they don't use, didn't use it as a table. The righteousness was considered, was compared to a cow that had four legs. And they said if a cow is standing only on three legs, it can walk, but it's limping badly. And already on two, it's almost impossible to imagine any walking for anything which was born with four legs. And thus, uh, I was musing uh, about tonight of, you know, sailing between Kashmiri Shaivism and parapsychology and yoga of perfect accomplishment and yoga and psychotherapy and so many things which are happening and I was hoping that presenting you with this fundamental model from the Vedic tradition you will get nourished by the wisdom of the Vedic sages. Think in your evolution in 10 years from now as you grow, how are you growing in terms of artha, kama, dharma, moksha? And in this way, take the necessary steps for balancing your lives, for living your lives in harmony. I will not start now giving examples. I promise that next time when I do the satsang, I will look into some of the teachings, some of the dharma teachings of the Buddha, as an example, especially focusing on the teachings on compassion, which are showing one of the highest ways of manifesting Dharma, as we are going to see. Thank you all for joining tonight. Namaste to all of you. And see you in the following meetings in the school. With this, we have finished. <laughs>